you know, the line of instrument preamplifiers, what we really wanted to do was, you know, bring our studio type electronics into a package that you could put on the floor in front of you on a stage. You know, being a non-musician and not being in bands and getting to have that experience of, you know, making music together, I, I have always wanted to be as close as I can to that process. Greetings, folks. It's Keith Billick here. I hope you're having a great day today. Thanks for joining me for the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Finishing this episode is pretty much the last thing that I'm going to be doing before packing up and going down to Raleigh, North Carolina for the IBMA convention. So I've, I've had a lot of cool podcasting stuff lately. I, I get to finish this episode and share it with you. I get to... Well, earlier today, I had uh, one of the VIP lounge meetings with the VIP supporters of the show, and I'll uh, mention more about that later. But then also, as I just mentioned, I get to go to the IBMA show where I will be at Exhibit Booth 112 with my good pal Dan Patrick. He does the Mandolins and Beer podcast. So there'll be a, a podcasting booth, essentially. So if anyone is hearing this in time and you happen to be in Raleigh, for that convention, stop by and say hi. I'll be there all week. And if you feel like you need a souvenir, I will have the famous Picky Fingers logo t-shirts that all the cool kids are wearing. And there will probably some be some special show pricing uh, for those. So that's a great way to up your fashion game and also support the podcast in the process plenty of other ways to support the show for if you if you do want one of those shirts but you're not going to be at ibma go to banjopodcast.com and check those out they're very nice very comfortable guaranteed to improve your social status brighten your smile clear up your skin make you look 10 years younger and improve your banjo playing in the process so check that out the other main way to support the show is to go to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash banjo podcast. That's how you enroll to be a VIP supporter and get invited to those monthly video meetups with me and your fellow VIPs. And that's what we had earlier today. It's always a lot of fun and always room for more. So check that out. Patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And of course, another one of the excellent prizes is personal recognition on the show and today we do have a very special patreon supporter to thank for their very generous contribution to the show and today that person is robert mcneil i don't have a whole lot of information about robert but he subscribed at the top hall of honor inductee level on the patreon page which is of course the highest civilian honor bestowed upon you know devoted listeners of the show so robert mcneil Wherever you are, thank you so much for your support. I also love hearing your feedback, comments, suggestions, all that stuff. So get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. If you have any of those things to share or just want to introduce yourself, that's cool too. My special guest for this episode is Michael Grace. Michael is not only a huge fan of banjo music, and all sorts of bluegrass, but he just happens to be the co-founder of Grace Design, the makers of some of the top quality audio equipment you can buy, especially for acoustic live performance. And if, if you don't believe me, just go back and listen to how many of the guests on this show, some of the top professionals, all say they use the Grace Felix or one of the Grace Design products. Even if you aren't interested in the Grace Design products, 
this is a really fascinating conversation, and I think it's a really valuable one, especially for any acoustic uh, musician who performs live and relies on preamps and DIs and wants to know more about best practices and using those and what's even going on there. A lot of us don't have the uh, electronics or audio knowledge to, to actually know what all these little boxes are doing. Well, you're going to hear it all broken down for you by one of the top audio minds in the realm of acoustic amplification. Last thing before we get started, you'll hear me mention him during the interview, but special thanks also goes out to my old buddy, uh, Jamie Crapel, who was a, a college friend of mine and actually recorded the first album I was ever on playing banjo. He went on to work for Michael Grace at Grace Design and had a big hand in the development of some of their products. So when he heard that I wanted to do an episode that was sort of an electronics and acoustic amplification 101, he made the introduction between Mike and I. So Jamie, thank you so much. And to everybody else, enjoy this interview with Michael Grace of Grace Design. My name is Michael Grace. Grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm the, a faculty brat. My father is a music professor at Colorado College, so I grew up, you know, in a house full of music. Began raiding my dad's record collection when I, as soon as I was old enough to operate the turntable myself, <laughs> and you know, dug into the Beatles and the Doors and Jimi Hendrix and everything else he had in there. Uh -huh. I bought my first tape recorder when I was in fourth grade at a yard sale for five bucks. Had a little wired microphone with it, and I would stay up late at night and hold the microphone in front of my AM radio and record Casey Kasem's Top 40 and oh, try, yeah. try to stay up till midnight to get the number one song. Um, <laughs> make your own mixtapes, basically? Make, make my own little mixtapes, yep. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, uh, how I came interested in electronics. I don't know. I've just always been sort of drawn to, um, well, especially you know, sound equipment, whether it's was my dad's stereo, he had a tape recorder, I bought my own. I was just always sort of enamored by things that could record sound and play them back. Yeah. So how did you end up focusing that into an actual discipline or, or you know, formal focus yeah. for yourself? You know, all through middle school and high school, I mean, I was the kid who you know, after school, I hung out at the local stereo shop downtown in Colorado Springs, you know, drove uh -huh. all the salesmen crazy as I just drooled over all the stuff. <laughs> so I knew that, you know, somehow this was going to be in my future. When I graduated from high school, I thought I was going to engineering school to learn electronics. Um, so I, I went to college and I lasted one year uh, in engineering school. And then I dropped out uh, because I got a great summer job, my first summer home from college working for a guy who um, makes really high-end hi-fi gear, like power amps and pre-amplifiers for, oh. you know, home hi-fi. Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, engineering school was kind of geared toward sending kids off to work for, you know, military contractors and all that stuff. And here I was all of a sudden learning audio gear. And, Which uh, is sort of what you always had in mind, it sounds like. Yeah, that's totally what I wanted. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. what I thought I was going to go to school for. But uh, this opportunity dropped into my lap, and I, I had this great summer job that turned into, a, you know, a six-year sort of apprenticeship um, with a really brilliant designer. And uh, during that time of learning this craft of building super high-resolution, really transparent playback systems, 
uh, I got really interested in recording. I was a big deadhead and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, got some Shep's microphones and early Sony digital recorder and headed out on the road and would record dead concerts. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah. And you were then, one of the tapers. Uh, I was one of those tapers uh, back in the mid 80s, you know, when started off with a Sony D5 cassette machine and then graduated to a, uh, early, early digital recorders. You know, that was really formative because I started building my own microphone preamps uh, for these portable systems. And as I started fiddling more and more with recording equipment, my brother Eben, who, who's also, you know, my business partner in Grace Design, we've been in business 25 years now. Eben is just a fabulous musician, great guitar player, singer, songwriter, and he started playing in bands about that time. And so it was clear we had to make demos. So started getting more and more into recording bought a 16-track, two-inch analog tape machine and a, an old Trident mixer, and we set up a studio. And pretty soon, I knew that that was where I wanted to go. Uh, so I left the, the consumer electronics, you know, home hi-fi job and, and moved to Boulder in 1990 uh, and started a business of kind of a combination of doing maintenance at recording studios and doing location recording. Um, and then slowly but surely, you know, building a clientele um, of customers for custom electronics that I was building. Microphone preamplifiers uh, primarily were the first products that I made. Yeah. So pe people like you uh, fascinate me because to me, it seems like a whole different skill set to know your capacitors and resistors and your, your soldering, but then also having the type of ear to analyze it in a a musical way, but it mm -hmm. seems like that came pretty naturally for you. I don't know how. How do you I explain that? Just those two skills that it that it takes. Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. Um, I love to listen to music. Um, I was never a very good musician. I I can play a few chords on the guitar, and I actually do have a, a 1928 master tone that I got from Charles Sautel. Of hot yeah, we'll be getting to rise. that. I, I heard about this. <laughs> um, uh, but I love listening to music. And, you know, back in high school, my sister turned me on to bluegrass. You know, Hot Rides would come down to Colorado Springs. There were some other little bands around town. Uh -huh. So I always loved to listen to music. And I, and, I, and I loved to try to get as close as I could to the source when, you know, if I'm listening on a on a recorded material, you know, a, a high quality playback system was something I always you know, endeavored for. Um, and rec when recording music, you know, getting as close to the source and, uh, you know, being a non-musician and not being in bands and getting to have that experience of, you know, making music together. I, I have always wanted to be as close as I can to that process, uh, being a yeah. kind of a non-musician. Non so I think that's how I've just been able to use my skills of listening uh, to to make meaningful products for people who are making music. Yeah, that sounds right. So so you said you set up a, a tape system. Was there a p part in time where you were actually doing studio engineering and stu studio recording, like for more than just Eben? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, in the mid '90s, uh, shortly after I'd moved to Boulder. I did a fair amount of studio work, doing albums in studios. Um, also did a lot of live recording, a lot of location uh -huh. recording. And that was either, you know, rock bands playing at the Boulder Theater uh, or, you know, a lot of um, 
a lot of classical and chamber music uh, stuff okay. as well. I was never as good a studio engineer as I wanted to be. And I think that's probably partly just because I'm just not a very good musician at a certain point, you know, to really, uh, when you're in the nuts and bolts creation of something in, in the multi-track environment, you know, you need better understand music than I do. So I gravitated more toward the live remote stuff. No, I forgot where I was going. Sorry. <laughs> I think I had just asked you if you had done much studio recording. Yeah. So it seems like you yeah. you dabbled in it for a while, but it, it maybe wasn't quite your thing. Yeah, it's true. I never, you know, I never, I never really got good at it, but I got more and more into the equipment. And uh, as, as I got better electronics design chops, I sort of began doing more and more building of equipment, you know, than spending time in the studio. Also during that time, most of, you know, most of my rent got paid by fixing tape machines and, and mixing boards at local studios. Uh -huh. uh, there wasn't a lot of money in, uh, in engineering at, at the level I was at. So it was kind of hard to make a living there. Gotcha. So you were, you were designing and the first time I became aware of you, well, I, let's, let's actually pause here for a second to acknowledge, uh, give some kudos to our, our mutual buddy, Jamie Craypole. Uh, Jamie and I were both interns at the same time at Glenn Brown's studio uh -huh. here in Michigan, who's a Grammy-winning guy. He's produced albums for millions of people, but including um, Green Sky Bluegrass and Billy Strings. He won a Grammy for that. He's got the studio chops. He's got the design chops. He's got all sorts of stuff. So Jamie and I were interning there. Yeah, I think he was still working with us there when he got the job with you. I think that was when he left Michigan was to go right to work for Grace Design. And, and uh, Jamie and I are in, in touch, and he put me in touch with you um, when I was asking about, you know, someone good to talk to about, about these topics. So uh, I might refer to Jamie yeah. throughout this interview a few times, and that's who I'm talking about is, is, our, ja is our good friend. Jamie is an absolute core character in the, in the Grace Design story. Um, he's a, well, first of all, he's just an absolute, gem of a human being, uh, mm -hmm. but he's incredibly bright and really has great design sensibilities. And, and we actually worked very closely together on a lot of the Grace Design's most popular products. Jamie's the man. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. And he, he engineered the first album I was on with my first band when he went, uh, wait, which band when, was that? This was a band called Hot Toe Midi. And this would have been yeah. when I was playing banjo for a year, so it's kind of cringy for me to, to listen to it. Jamie was there doing a good job, and you'll have to ask him about the studio we used. It was uh, it was haunted, so Jamie has some 
some ghost stories <laughs> to share. I do remember him mentioning hot committee. Yep. Yeah. So that, that was me. Full, small world. All right. Well, here we are. So, yeah. so, uh, so I came to be aware of your work through Jamie talking about getting this new cool gig. And, um, I think Glenn even had a few of your, your products in, in his place, some mic preamps. I think it was Glenn that told Jamie to call me, uh, about getting an internship that very first summer. So okay. you should call these guys. And, uh, that, so that Jamie, makes sense. Yep. So you were known for, for a while for your studio gear, but I think a lot of my listeners probably are much more familiar with your more recent developments for like products for performing acoustic musicians. How and when, and I guess why, did you make that transition after already being established for your, your studio gear? So yeah, you're right. We started making studio gear and primarily our first products were really high performance microphone preamplifiers. So mm -hmm. we designed these preamplifiers to be, you know, musical, transparent, uh, not drawing any attention to themselves, um, you know, sonically neutral. And mm -hmm. along the way, we started coming out with some microphone preamps where we added uh, high Z instrument inputs on the front panel for the case where maybe you're recording some stuff and you need to direct inject a uh, you know a guitar or a bass or a keyboard or something directly and you need a you know a preamp to get it up to level to go to your recording system um, so we we designed a one channel microphone preamp called the m101 and it had a high z input on the front Mm -hmm. Well, uh, a couple of years after that thing had been in production, I was at Rocky Grass, and here comes Edgar Meyer uh, with a 101 sitting on a stool, and he's got his bass plugged into it for his uh -huh. for his live rig. Yeah, and uh, well, we were pretty blown away by that. <laughs> and, right. And uh, uh, as well, um, some friends of ours and Uncle Earl, um, Jesse Burns, uh, had had gotten a 101 and start plugging her fiddle into it and they just loved the way that mic preamp with a high z input could capture you know the essence of their instruments and so oh, cool uh, for a number of years uh you know more and more musicians started buying our preamps and using them that way and uh over time we you know we realized you know we could really take this concept and repackage it and add features that are really more friendly for, you know, live sound environment, uh, you know, live stage environment, uh, and, and make this product much more useful to people, uh, as well. Not everybody has, you know, the quality of instrument that Edgar or, or Jesse Burns plays <laughs> right. and, and you might need some equalization to, uh, to compensate for problems in, in the instrument or the pickup or the, or the combination of the two. So that was where the, the idea of the, you know, the instrument preamplifiers was born. Um, it really started, started with our earlier mic preamps. So it wasn't even necessarily your idea. It was just that people were using your products for that anyway. It was, and, yeah, and it was their idea. <laughs> we, uh, we ran with it. <laughs> uh, so, so that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Now Eben is a guitar player and has, was very instrumental in, you know, understanding a lot of the specific intricacies and needs of, you know, modern acoustic players, uh, yeah. you know, and we, we knew Richard Battaglia and the, and the preamps that he'd been building, the blending preamps, the pendulums. Uh, so we knew that we needed 
to come up with something that would allow uh, the folks that are doing blending to to be able to handle that. But yeah, that's kind of where it where it originally came from. Now, those folks that you that you mentioned that you saw using the one hundred and one for their stage preamps mm-hmm. are all from kind of my world in uh, you know the general bluegrass rootsy realm. Mm-hmm. It does that even today is that a pretty big portion of your business do you think are bluegrassers or or has it caught on to other country and folk and and just all-purpose acoustic everything certainly the largest uh sector of you know acoustic preamp customers are in in the sort of the bluegrass realm you know from you know small traditional bands up to the full the yeah. big high power the, acts the edgar <laughs> um, myers yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, string dusters were here last, uh, last weekend for the Rocky grass. And, you know, that's kind of a pretty much an honor to see the stage littered with Felix's there. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be great. It's interesting to, you know, watch the evolution, right? 15 years ago, we were going to Rocky grass and everybody was trying to figure out how to play around one microphone and get back to the, you know, the, <laughs> the roots of, uh, yeah. you know, getting around the can and now pretty much everybody, you know, want, wants to be plugged in, be able to play louder, be able to monitor and, and all these things. But back to your original question. Yes, uh, bluegrass is the biggest sort of genre that has that, uh, you know, we sell instrument preamps to. Um, jazz is pretty big, too, especially in the bass player realm. For acoustic bass, being able to blend a pickup and a mic is, is uh, really just a great option for live playing. Uh, we have... A fair number in the, of people in the sort of more folk circles uh, playing, you know, guitars primarily. And then we have a kind of a small uh, segment of customers that are um, cl- uh, classical guitar players um, that really like the the Felix. So Yeah, that makes sense. Jamie, uh, we, we alluded to this a few minutes ago, but Jamie also told me you have quite a history of with Hot Rise. So... Talk about your interactions with them, and and I definitely want to hear about this banjo. So any of, any of you listeners who, you know, wrinkled your forehead of why do, why do I have this guy on a banjo podcast? <laughs> there's a there's a connection here, so we, we can prove it. Yeah, t- okay. tell us all about this. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm guessing I'm safe here saying that I love the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so as a uh, as a teenager in high school, my older sister kind of she discovered bluegrass uh, and uh-huh. and started turning me on to it. And um, there was a local band in Colorado Springs called the Reasonable Band, and they had a mando player. And now I can't remember his name, but he was he was really great. He ended up getting hired by Larry Sparks, and kind of mm. spirited away. And then the Reasonable Band went away. That was too bad, but, uh, okay. but it was good for him. Uh, but Hot Rise, uh, she turned me on to Hot Rise, and they would come down to Colorado Springs and play at this restaurant called the Ancient Mariner, which looked like an old <laughs> pirate ship from the outside. And you go in, and everything is, uh, you know, uh, nautical in seafaring uh, decor. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I was I was 15, but you know, I was probably six foot two. And, um, you know, back in those days, people weren't really rigorous about checking IDs. So I was able to sneak in and sit in the back and Hot Rise would play. And I just absolutely adored them. So became a big fan and would would sneak in anytime I could at any club around to, to hear Hot Rise. Years later, when I moved to Boulder, 
and was doing a lot of studio maintenance, I met Charles Sautel because of the Hot Rise guys, he was the one that had the studio. And so mm -hmm. he had, you know, mics and preamps and an old Scully eight track tape machine and stuff that would break. So we got connected by a friend of ours named Mickey Houlihan and we became good friends and I would go up there and hang out and, you know, help fix the stuff in his studio. Yeah. And uh, I would trade him microphone preamplifiers for banjo lessons and uh, <laughs> uh, and lessons from Charles lessons from Charles. He was a he was a, a very serviceable banjo player. Um, huh. And he had a couple of nice banjos. He had two Gibson master tones and one. I don't know what it was, but it had gold all over it. It was it was very, very fancy. And he had another one that wasn't gold all over it. And uh, not long before he died, he said, hey, you want to trade a 201 mic preamp for this banjo? That's the, That sounds like a steal of a deal. So yeah, I traded him a mic preamp and he gave me that banjo. And, and uh, that was- And what is it? You said it's a an old Granada? It's a 1928 Master Tone. Oh, okay. Um, and- Not sure of the model. Not sure of the model. Um, and it's, I'm not a- banjo expert but one time mike munford was here because they uh -huh. the his band frank sullivan's band was coming through town and they were getting some stuff set up on their felixes and and he is a encyclopedia of um, oh, yeah. of banjo technology and he opened it up and took a look at it and said well that's a tone ring from a blonde that's a that's a from a and so you know <laughs> it's not it's not a intact original thing it's got a little bit of a frankenstein machine but it, but it's almost more rare to find any that are not frankensteins right. yeah. at this point so yeah so anyway that's that's the story behind the the 28 master tone and uh oh that's so cool and uh, i'm not able to uh to play it uh the way that it deserves to be played but it uh, it's a great reminder of charles sautel who was really uh, just a fabulous musician and and a, and a really wonderful man yeah, some sentimental value, if nothing else. Absolutely, yep. Hey folks, it's time for me to introduce you to a brand new Picky Fingers sponsor, and that's GHS Strings. Now, GHS might be a new sponsor, but uh, they're definitely not new to the string business. They've been making some of the best banjo strings on the market since 1964, they use their proprietary lock twist on the plain steel strings for incredible stability, extra large loops for easy installations on any tailpiece, and a wide range of gauged sets for every player. My personal favorite that I've been using for years is the PF145s, but they do have a lot of options for uh, whatever your preference is. And they're very durable, have a long lifespan, and probably my favorite part is that these things are made right down the street from me in Battle Creek, Michigan. So not only do I think they are the best strings out there, but I can feel good about supporting a local company. And I'm not the only one who thinks very highly of their strings. GHS strings are also used by J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, Bela Fleck, and a lot more. So go check out what they have to offer at their website, ghsstrings.com. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. 
PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction with courses including Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Each course includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play with. So what I need you to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, and you're going to get your first month's free uh, just by being a Picky Fingers listener. Go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase. And once again, that gets you your first month free at PegheadNation.com. The Picky Fingers podcast is also sponsored by Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom-and-pop businesses rather than going to the big box stores. Well, with Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family-owned since 1972, located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps most importantly, a down-to-earth knowledgeable sales staff that is there to help you with anything you need from advice on the high-dollar vintage instrument that you're looking for right down to what picks you should buy. They're happy to help, and they're just a phone call or an internet search away. Go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880 and tell them Picky Fingers sent you. So let's move more into your your company mm-hmm. and your products. I, I'm thinking most banjo players and probably most musicians in general probably don't even understand why they need a preamp or a DI box other than everyone tells them they need one and they see everyone using them. So let's let's maybe do like a quick electronics 101. And are you able to explain why do we need preamps and DIs in the first place as acoustic musicians? Sure. Well, when you're playing live, um, you need to somehow get the sound of your instrument to the PA system. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, that was done with microphones, right? Everybody's probably at some point played into a microphone. If, however, you want to use a pickup, you have to somehow get the sound from your pickup into the PA system. And the PA system has probably got a bunch of microphone inputs. Well, A microphone input, for one, it's a balanced line, and most pickups are unbalanced, and it also has a very low impedance. So if you plugged your pickup directly into the microphone input line on the PA system, the very low impedance of that microphone input would swamp down the output of your pickup so that you would barely be able to hear it. And it would Mm -hmm. also create an electrical load on your pickup that would dramatically affect the tonal characteristic of it. Um, for instance, if you have a, a piezo-type pickup as opposed to a magnetic pickup, um, yeah. the lower the impedance that that piezo pickup sees, the less bass you get out of it. So if you were to plug a piezo pickup right into a mic input, you might only get a little bit of treble sound out of your pickup and and nothing in the mid-range or bass registers. Um, So 
The problem is one of impedance matching. So a pickup wants to see a very high impedance so that you can have a flat frequency response all the way through the useful range of your instrument. Okay. So what uh, a preamp or DI does is uh, allows you to take a high impedance signal from a pickup and convert it into a low impedance signal uh, that the PA can understand on the microphone inputs. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of ways of doing that. I'm sure you've shown up at a gig and the sound guy or woman has handed you a little box, a little DI, and says, plug into this. Uh -huh. And uh, you've seen DIs. There are those little boxes on the floor that you plug your instrument into. And, and right. there are a variety of types of them. There are passive DIs and active DIs. And a passive DI uses a transformer to convert the sound of uh, the signal from your pickup uh, to a mic level signal and convert mm -hmm. it from unbalanced to balanced, but it doesn't add any power to the system. So to do that, the transformer uh, has to, has what's a large, what's called turns ratio, a, a bunch of windings on the input and only a few windings on the output wrapped around a magnetic core. And the result is something that Depending on the impedance of your instrument and the impedance of the mic input, you're going to get a different sound quality every time. So hmm. the idea behind an active DI is that an active DI can have a, an active amplifier with a high impedance input to receive your pickup signal. And then it has some power to drive the, micro, the low impedance microphone input without loading your instrument in any way. And that's, that's right. uh, in its simplest form, that's called a buffer, okay. is what a preamplifier is. Um, so what we're doing is we're combining, for example, the BICS, that's our simplest instrument preamplifier. It consists of, of three components in the signal path. There's an input amplifier that has a very high impedance input that won't affect the frequency response of your pickup. There are a couple of tone shaping controls, and then there's an output driver that drives a transformer with plenty of power to the uh, microphone level output, which then you can feed on to the PA system. Yeah. Um, real, real quick, just to make sure we have our terminology straight, mm -hmm. you, you keep referring to high and low impedance. A lot of times things will be labeled high Z and low Z, mm -hmm. and... Um, just for listeners to be aware that that's synonymous, is is it not? With yes. High impedance and low yes. impedance. Z. Yeah. The, Z uh, is just the shorthand. The letter for impedance is Z. The letter Z. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, if you say high Z, that means it's high impedance, and impedance is is measured in ohms, but indicated with a Z in this case. Mm -hmm. And then also, you you've mentioned a few things about balanced and unbalanced. And a, a good rule of thumb, at least for the instrument cables that, that people use, is if you're using a quarter-inch cable, that tends to be unbalanced. Of course, there are balanced quarter-inch cables, but that's not what you use for your instruments and your amps and stuff. Correct. And then the balanced cables are when you see the those three-pin microphone cable XLR plug style. As a general rule, is that is that a good thing for people to keep in mind? I think that's a good general rule, especially you know in the stage environment. Mm -hmm. A tip TRS or tip ring sleeve 
you know, quarter inch jack is not something you'll typically find uh, with balanced audio running on it. it. Like you said, you'll primarily have instrument cables, which are tip and sleeve, um, mm -hmm. uh, and then microphone cables, which are three pins, which are ground, uh, positive and negative. And tell us real quick, what is special about a, a cable being balanced? Well, balanced lines um, were invented so that you could send a signal over a long piece of cable and reject noise and interference that might get into it along the way. Uh, it mm -hmm. can reject noise that might get into the cable from external radiated sources like maybe a lighting dimmer or something that the cable's running near. Uh, and it also rejects noise caused by having ground uh, voltage differentials between the source and destination. So imagine, you know, you've got your stage with all your power on your stage, and then you've got your, uh, say, your mixing board, which is 100 feet away out, out in the middle of the house. The uh, AC power between those two places might have different ground potentials, and, and that can cause a hum in your signal if it's an unbalanced signal. But when you go to a balanced signal, it can reject that noise. So that's why microphones and, and long-distance audio lines are always best sent balanced. And short lines, like from an instrument to a preamp, for instance, or an instrument to a guitar amp, mm -hmm. generally you can get away with unbalanced. Did I interrupt you before? Or were you pretty much done answering the... <laughs> The, the first thing. Oh, I think uh, the uh, question was, why do we need why do we DIs need them? and preamps? Yeah. So yeah. you need them to convert the impedance, right? The high impedance mm -hmm. to the low impedance. Yeah, just to sum up, there, there are two basic types. There's passive and active. And uh, the active type is much better, especially for acoustic instruments, where you're really trying mm -hmm. to preserve a natural tonal characteristic of a, you know, of an instrument, whereas a you know, an electric guitar with magnetic coils is, it's a sound that you're creating from scratch, basically. So, a, you know, plugging a bass or electric guitar into a passive DI is, is not going to potentially make your instrument sound less real the way that could happen if you're plugging a banjo or acoustic guitar or a mandolin into a passive DI. To add to our rules of thumb, if your DI needs a wall plug or a battery or phantom power, that's a good indication that it's an active DI. Absolutely, yeah. As a, and if it doesn't, that it can't be an active DI if it doesn't require power, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Yep. So we referred to kind of your core de design philosophy at Grace Designs, and I hope this is a clear enough question. But but what would you say your design philosophy is. And and where I'm getting this is Jamie did tip me off that, I, I guess I'll read you just what he wrote. He, sa he said, Mike designs equipment to sound as natural and musical as possible. And that to you is more important than achieving a technical specs. And you, you want it to just sound good with harmonically complex instruments and music. So I guess with that in mind, how would you describe your approach to designing some of these circuits and products? Yeah, it's hard to say it better than that. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, uh, uh, since the beginning, and really because I really learned electronics from somebody who, who taught me how to listen, you know, you use measurement equipment in the lab to make sure that your product is not broken and that it's not doing anything wrong. And then from there, you know, things do get subjective. Um, 
the, the type of capacitors you use, the type of resistors you use, the, the way you lay out a circuit board, um, you know, grounding, power supply design, all these little things add together uh, to make a, you know, a piece of audio gear that, that sounds effortless and invisible and doesn't draw attention to itself. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of great applications for gear that's not like that, you know, compressors, uh, things that, you know, over something with overdrive or with a tiny little transformer, if you're looking for distortion, you can overload something and get some vibe out of, out of it. But there's plenty of that out there. But my philosophy is to, you know, capture the essence of whether you're recording something with a microphone or, you know, or, or capturing an instrument for, for live sound is to, to get as close as you can to the natural sound of that instrument. So I think, you know, our electronic circuits all try to do that, um, whether it's just for studio use or whether it's for live sound use. You know, the line of instrument preamplifiers, what we really wanted to do was, you know, bring our studio type electronics uh, into a package that you could put on the floor in front of you on a stage. And that so that was, mm-hmm. you know, that's why they're bigger and much more expensive and, you know, use AC power plugs instead of, um, you know, batteries. Yeah, that's the basic philosophy behind the instrument preamps is to bring something that's just really natural, open, lots of headroom, very low noise, very low distortion. Uh, so that just gets out of the way and it's not a part of your sound. It, it's allowing your sound to get through. Is it challenging to design something with with that goal, knowing that it's going to be used by people who play everything from a, an upright bass to a mandolin to a nylon string guitar and use every sort of pickup from the the piezos to all the different magnetics and you know there, there's such a a crazy range of permutations of what people are plugging into these things. Yeah, uh, that's got to be challenging. So, so how do you navigate that? Well, um, in the case of the Felix, we um, we kind of added feature by feature everything you would need to make it a flexible enough uh, machine to be able to adapt to almost every type of instrument and pickup pedal board environment, if you will. Uh, that uh-huh. that you might be able to throw at it. So the result is, you know, in the case of the Felix, there are a lot of a lot of options, a lot of switches, uh, variable input impedance to to match it to different types of pickups. We're, we're still talking high impedance, um, uh-huh. but yeah, some pickups need higher impedance than others. And then you know we have parametric equalizers, so you can adjust the filters so that they work properly for a you know, a bass violin all the way up to, uh, you know, a fiddle or a mandolin. Um, so we have really, you know, wide range of EQ settings. And then, of course, you know, the, the ability to, to to have a two-channel, the Felix is a two-channel device so that you can have a pickup and a microphone attached to your instrument um, and adjust the sound quality of each one to your liking and then blend them together at the end to get the, the best of both worlds. So um, right. the... Felix was sort of the kitchen sink experiment. Um, right. you know, how do we build a box that can that can work for almost everybody? Uh, if you had to give an elevator pitch to a, a professional acoustic musician that might be considering the Felix, is that your pitch that it has all the adjustments and controls that that somebody like that would would need? Yeah, I I mean I usually start by saying, look. 
even if you don't use any of these things, the having an exceptionally high fidelity, low noise instrument preamp and a really high quality output uh, DI output with a really good transformer mm -hmm. um, is super important. Um, I think people don't realize how much better a sound you can get out of an instrument if you bypass the little DI that's sitting on the on the stage, um, of, you know, in most venues. Um, uh -huh. So that's the first thing I, I pitch to people is, hey, that you know, this this is going to make you hear a lot more of your instrument, a lot more of the richness and the harmonics and the overtones and the, the subtlety and from the quietest whisper to, you know, when you're fully laying into it, it it's not it's going to hold together. It's not going to overload. It's um, it's just going to be an invisible link. And, and to your point, that's even if you just have all the dials at 12 o'clock. Right. I mean, we have a lot of customers who have, you know, absolutely fabulous tone and have, yeah, all the EQs basically set at zero. Now that hmm. if you have a great instrument and and more importantly, a good pickup installation, that's that's the, the probably the trickiest part of all of it is is picking the right pickup for your instrument and and having it installed properly. Um, that will mm -hmm. solve a lot of problems before they happen. Uh, and you won't have to try to correct for problems downstream. But, right. but, you know, most instruments definitely benefit from some mild tone shaping here and there, especially if you are uh, blending a pickup and a microphone. So imagine a Pezo pickup has that really kind of bumpy, bumpy, low, low end, and it's sensitive to handling noise, for instance, on the instrument. Um, mm. So you can take a high pass filter and roll off the, the bottom couple octaves from your pickup and let the microphone uh, produce that, that low frequency sound because it's going to be more natural. Mm -hmm. So that's where filters can be handy, um, uh, even if it's not just tone shaping uh, a, a signal to make the, the instrument sound balanced. Is that a pretty um, typical approach in terms of people who blend is rely on the microphone for more low frequencies and the pickup for higher frequencies? Does that tend to be the, the balance between those? Yeah, that, that generally is a good strategy. Um, and especially if you're in a loud stage situation that... Um, uh, with a Felix, for instance, you can blend the pickup and the mic together and send it to the front of house as a nice balanced blended sound of your instrument. But uh, for the monitors, you can have a, uh, just the pickup signal and send that just for the monitors. And then mm -hmm. you've got the low frequencies rolled off some. It's not going to want to feedback. You can play louder um, and, you know, but still maintain that nice you know, rich, warm microphone sound, uh, for the, for the audience, for the audience. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, I know this might be a little outside your, your expertise, but you, you mentioned how important having a good pickup installed was at least in terms of, of banjos. Do you have any experience with products that are out there to, to either specifically recommend or specifically stay away from in, in terms of what you've been impressed with? Well, the the ones that I know the most well, I don't know a lot about a lot of the banjo pickups, but the ones I I know that Bela plays <laughs> uh -huh. uh, are the EMGs. Bela is like well, our first big Felix customer, and so I did get to talk to his engineer Richard Battaglia some about this. So the the EMGs 
um, which is a magnetic pickup, but kind of an interesting design because they also they also use uh, some microphonics of the coils. They have the coils mounted in a way that they pick up uh, some of the vibrations as well as just str- string movement. Ah, so they I did actually, not know that. they actually That's good have to know. a little bit of microphonics in there too to bring out some of the other uh, resonances in the instrument that you wouldn't hear just by uh, detecting spring, string vibration. Um, oh, how cool. Yeah. And then, uh, I, then he plays a fishman, I think for his, his, uh, his you know, his main bluegrass axe. And the, and you consider both of those to be high quality and compatible with, with your products or with, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, of course, anytime you clip a microphone on to, you know, get a, you know, if you, if you can afford it, get a, a DPA or, or some other good condenser clip on mic, um, and, and have it a couple inches out, um, to pick up, you know, some of the acoustic sound that that's always going to help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think an underappreciated feature of the, you're on the Felix two. Now you've just updated mm-hmm. the, the model, I mm-hmm. think earlier this year. Is yep, that right? That's right. Uh, I think an underappreciated feature of the new model is the variable phase control. And anyone who's been an avid listener of my show remembers that Mike Bont of Green Sky Bluegrass talked a lot about how important it was to to sync up his his mic and pickup in terms of phase alignment. And it was it was quite a chore for him to work with his sound guy and and do these measurements and try to get them in line. And now you can do that adjustment, you know, right on the Felix. Can you maybe discuss the benefits of that feature? Like, why is it needed in the first place? And then also, how should players approach dialing that in? Right. Um, so, yeah, the 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 phase control, um, it's not something new. It's a circuit that's been out there for eons. Um, it's called an all-pass filter. And basically what it is, is it's a... It's an equalizer that has the amplitude control basically negated by feedback. So all you get is the phase shift of an equalizer. So anytime you turn an equalizer oh. up or down uh, or a high-pass filter or a low-pass filter, you get a fa- associated phase shift with the roll-off. What an all-pass filter does is it gives you that phase shift, but it negates the roll-off. So you get... Uh-huh. Flat frequency it's response. Even across the board. It's yeah, yeah. The, the amplitude response is flat all the way through, but the phase changes with frequency. So imagine a situation where you've got uh, a pickup, um, say on a bridge uh, under under or under the saddle or or um and then a clip on mic that might be Banjos don't have saddles, uh, Mike. So, oh right! Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine a, a microphone clipped on, and it's maybe six inches away from the strings. Okay. Uh-huh. So when you hit the strings, the sound goes directly into the pickup, and then oh, approximately a half a millisecond later, it arrives at the microphone. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit blurred. Um, the attack uh, of your notes, especially in the banjo registers, are going to be. Um, a little bit blurred. So by using an all-pass filter on the pickup signal, you can adjust the phase shift. The, and the all-pass filter on the, on the Felix causes what's called a phase lag. Okay, so it's it, at any given frequency, there's going to be a certain amount of delay 
um, caused mm -hmm. by the phase lag. And so, for example, in the mid-range at, say, let's say 1,000 hertz, if you set the phase control to minus 180 degrees phase, that's approximately half a millisecond, which is also the distance of your mic from the from the pickup. So what that essentially does is in that frequency range, in the mid-range of your spectrum, that pickup signal has been delayed by about the same transit time from sound going from the pickup to the mic, and they should be in perfect time alignment. Now, in theory, that all sounds really neat and clean. It's like, oh, I just <laughs> turned my knob until it's it sounds right. But in practice, it's it's not a night and day sort of thing. It's definitely subtle. Um, and right. and the closer the mic is to the body of the instrument, you know, the less obvious it's going to be that there's one perfect setting. But what you will find is that as you adjust that control and also experiment with inverting the phase at the same time, so that, you know, the, the Felix has a polarity invert switch for each mm -hmm. channel as well. Um, and, and what that does is that, that makes one uh, channel of the Felix 180 degrees out of phase at all frequencies. Mm -hmm. It's an all-pass filter. is only 180 degrees at high frequencies, and that changes as you go lower. So mixing and matching the polarity reversal and the phase delay can really help you find a sweet spot. And again, it may not be necessarily the thing that you might, you know, calculate to be exactly what you need by looking uh -huh. at the physics of it, but just by listening by ear, uh, listening to attacks, listening to tonal clarity, listening to that, you know, all the notes ring the same, you know, throughout the scale. Those are the things that that phase control can help you get dialed in. Do you have people sending both signals to say a, a DAW or, or any other way that they can look at waveforms to align it? Does that tend to be helpful? Have you heard of people doing that? I haven't. I haven't. Okay. I, you know, I think it might be hard to get, a, you know, again, you can you can do the math just by using a ruler and figuring out time mm -hmm. delays uh, and set the knob accordingly and find that, that, may, that that's not necessarily the best spot um, right. to your ear. So it even gets more complex because the, the closer the mic gets uh, to the instrument, you know, the whole phase response of the sound it hears compared to what your ear might hear from 10 feet back is different as well. So what, what the mic hears is, you know, is a very complex um, sort of mess. <laughs> of, yeah. Um, yeah. And then especially if you get to an internal mic or a mic that's behind the head of the banjo, for instance, then you're really talking about all bets are off in terms of, <laughs> you know, what does time alignment mean? So again, I, I just consider it more of, a, of another tone control tool that uses phase mm -hmm. shift to, you know, help you find that sweet spot uh, for your instrument with your pickup and your, and your microphone. Are, are there other common issues that you've encountered when you discuss your, your products or, or when people call you up with maybe issues that they're having? Are, are there common ones that performing acoustic musicians often have with their setups? Mm -hmm. And, and if there are some common ones, what are your solutions to those issues? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there are lots of issues and that's, that's part of why the Felix ended <laughs> up being such a powerful tool, you know, yeah. um, because everybody's got their own little problem with, you know, for their instrument and their setup um, that needs a solution. You know, the most common is 
people wanting to blend a microphone and a pickup. I mean, that was really kind of the impetus for the, for the first Felix prototypes was, you know, how do we do this without, you know, having a 19-inch rack full of stuff and, you know, preamps and mixers and a, and a heavy thing um, where you could do it all in one box. Um, so right. for sure, the blending problem was, you know, the one that really, you know, drove the development of the product in the first place. Gotcha. Um, having separate channels with separate equalizers for a pickup and the microphone. There are other blending boxes out there. Not all of them have separate tone controls for each each channel. So it's like that kind of defeats the purpose because you really right. have <laughs> radically different sound problems with each signal between a microphone and a pickup. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. You know, people just looking for better tone. Definitely, that's an issue that people come to us with. Hey, uh, you know, uh, my rig is just not sounding great. You know, I've got such and such a thing and it's just not working well. I want to try and see if there's something better. And I think a lot of people are surprised at how much of a difference it makes uh, to have a, you know, a really, really high quality preamp and DI uh, for their live sound. Yeah, so it's just, a, I'd say it's just a, a wide range of issues. There aren't specific things just need yeah. for more, need for more control. I think um, ultimately yeah. is the biggest issue. So yeah, that makes sense. Now the uh, now is a double edged sword because the more control you have, the more ways there are for things to get sideways and uh, and go <laughs> <Yeah>. wrong. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we certainly my cell phone has rung on many occasions. <laughs> people at someone at sound check with their new Felix and, <laughs> and they can't get any sound out and they're freaking and they're, out. Flipping uh, the dip switches all over yeah, the place. There's, and <laughs> yeah, there's, there are lots of ways to get in trouble. Um, so we always recommend, you know, never show up at a gig with your brand new Felix. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> Without workshopping it a little first. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. Especially in the, Jamgrass world, mm -hmm. we're we're hearing a lot of players incorporating effect pedals into their even acoustic setups. So I guess this out almost harkens back to your Pete Wernick fandom mm -hmm. with, with his Phase Ninety. Do you have any advice for people who want to incorporate stomp boxes into their setup? Because that I know that that throws a wrench into our high impedance, low impedance, everything. If if I if I have a Felix or a or a Bix or whatever and I wanna play a phase 90, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll say whether you buy our preamps or, or any of the other you know, excellent products that are out there, the key here is having an insert because mm -hmm. an insert is a place where you can put your effects pedal in series with your signal path after the input preamp from your instrument, which is very critical, you know, that what your instrument plugs into is perhaps the most important thing. So you don't want to just plug your instrument into a, a pedal and then a tuner and then a blah and then a DI because all those boxes are going to have unknown impedances. They're going to probably be running on, you know, very, very, very low power amplifiers because they run on batteries and they need, you need long battery life. Um, so they mm -hmm. might be a little noisy. So the, it, by using a good preamp, you can plug your instrument into a really high quality preamp. And then once your instrument's been preamped, then you can send it to your pedals at a nice high clean level. Uh, and 
insert send on a Bix or a Felix or an Alex is a very low impedance signal. And so it won't be affected by uh, the circuitry in your pedals. And so you'll get less degradation of sound going, going out to your pedals. And then your pedals come back in on an insert return jack, which receives the signal from your pedals before sending it out the DI to the PA system. So it, it's great to have that insert, whether it, you know on any kind of acoustic preamp. Um, I would always recommend using the insert for your effects um, and your tuner. Better yet, if you have a, a Felix or an Alex or a Bix, you can use the amp out or tuner out for your tuner so it's not in your signal path at all. Uh, because, you know, a lot of tuners have a nice, great straight wire with gain, you know, you know, no degradation, but you never know. And so you don't mm -hmm. want to send your delicate signal through a tuner if you don't have to. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So pedals in the insert. Yeah. And uh, is insert synonymous with effects loop yes. on most of these devices? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I thought so. I know they work about the same, but I didn't know in terms of signal flow if, if they yeah. match up. Yeah. Basically, it's a it's a, a place in the signal path in your preamp where you can break out and, and send through a loop and come back in. Yeah. Yep. Give it a detour. Yeah. And uh, I, th I think that's pretty much all I have uh, other than to bring it back to on topic for the show. Who are some of your favorite banjo players? Well, let's see. I'd have to say, uh, you know, all the obvious ones. Um, Bela Fleck is definitely up there. Allison Brown, Pete Wernick, Tony Trishka, mm -hmm. Tony Furtado. Oh, there's so many great, great players, but uh no, that's cool. Those are I, I, very, very you, good choices. Yeah, I mean, I the I got introduced to bluegrass, but not traditional bluegrass. Primarily, you know, the first bluegrass I listened to was Hot Rise, um, and uh, you know, Dave Grisman's bands. You know, so sort yeah. of West Coast. You know, the all the early Tony Rice stuff. I, I guess, I mean, obviously Earl Scruggs is kind of awesome too. But I find myself listening to more sort of progressive acoustic genre if, if that's such a thing absolutely but it's it's kind of funny that over the years you know you, you mentioned hot rise as being not very traditional and in a way i agree but it's funny how over the years they become they seem more and more traditional sure. as as players get more and more away from the 1940s and 1950s style of sound yeah Oh, there are a lot of adventurous <laughs> banjo players out there, and it's yeah, it's it's awesome. Room yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Is there anything else we forgot to mention about things that you think are important for acoustic hmm. musicians to know, or uh, or about your products specifically? I think we hit just about everything of the notes I put in. To, uh, I mean, I think I answered some of your questions in different places than I thought yeah, I would. But. I so. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, let's, let's just uh, leave people with making sure they know how to, to find your products now that they've heard all the, the cool things about them. What's, what's like a website they can go to and get, give us all the information of how to find Grace Design's products. Yeah. So Grace Design is on the internet at uh, www.gracedesign.com all one word, singular, um, dot com. Uh, and you can see all of our products there and, and uh, look at 
the owner's manuals if you want to dig in and see how it's going to work and how it might work in your setup. We have a great service department. Alex uh, in service is always happy to answer questions, pre-purchase questions, whatever. You know, we want people to be successful with our products and find a good way to integrate them and have it, have it work out well. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Glad you had fun at Rocky Grass. <laughs> and it's, it's always great to see more and more of your, of your boxes making a way, you know, making their way to, to stages. It's helping everyone sound good. All right. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks so much for, for the chat. That's going to wrap up this conversation with Michael Grace of Grace Design. Thank you so much for joining me. You heard some song clips in this episode. In order, they were Eyes of the World by The Grateful Dead, Wayfaring Stranger performed by my old band Hot Tomity, Amalgamations for Solo Bass performed by Edgar Meyer, and then 99 Years by Hot Rise. Thank you once again to Robert McNeil, today's Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjopodcast to become a supporter yourself. Contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And if any of you are at the IBMA show this upcoming week, come say hi. Exhibit booth 112. It'll be me and the Mandolins and Beer podcast. And I'd love to see some of you there. But I've procrastinated packing for that trip for long enough. So I'm going to get out of here and I'll see you all next time. Mm -hmm.